I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, But in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. When I was recording the Book Boys episode with Ben uh, last Monday, I got a message from a friend of mine saying that uh, her co-worker uh, has contracted the virus and had to alert everyone in the company, and that she had seen that person just uh, six or seven days prior when she had to go into the office at night when she thought it was safe, and he walked past her and said hi. Since then, uh, last night, apparently, she had a hard time breathing and she was shaking, and even today she was having difficulty breathing, And so I was telling her, you should call a doctor and get tested. And in case you need a respirator or need to go into the ER, they can let you know. But she didn't. She said, I'm just going to take a nap. I think I'm working too hard, which is crazy. It's something someone in the Great Depression would say because they didn't have money for a doctor. And so she did. And I kept saying, for the love of God, go to a doctor. But she wouldn't do it. Uh, She says she feels a little bit better now, so I guess that's okay. But I just talked to another friend of mine, uh, my friend Jesse, and he said at his work, one of his co-workers contracted the disease and it was so intense that he couldn't breathe and had to go to the ER. So it stopped being a cute little uh, uh, world event and now it's just scary, which it's been scary for everyone else, but here in the city I live in, Uh, It hasn't really struck that hard yet and uh, hasn't been that terrifying yet. It's just a lot of news you read. So there you go. Young people can almost die from it. Uh, Middle-aged people can get severely sick from it. Um, So, as if no one knows already, uh, I'm just going to do the PC thing and say, wash your hands, stay in the house, limit your contact with people, uh, because this is terrifying. In other news, uh, I have no other news. Um, Just locked up in the house. Uh, My kids come and go between my house and their mom's house. Uh, And when the kids are around, it's cute and it's fun. And they play a lot of video games and that kind of thing. When they're not around, I'm just by myself with the cats, as I've said before. Uh, The new cat still is terrified of me because I keep showing up to shove medication down its throat. So it avoids me as if I'm a murderer which breaks my heart. So, uh, Monday is when it can come out of quarantine, and hopefully I can stop feeding it drugs, and hopefully uh, things can get better from there. That's it. I got nothing else. That's the life that's going on right now. Uh, When you don't get to go out of the house, these are the things you do. I talk to my sister and brother-in-law over FaceTime, because we can't be in person, Uh, and that was good. We talked for like four hours. Uh, sat around chatting, and it was cute, and it was fun. And that's it. All right, let's talk about the author. The author of today's story is Anthony Boucher. Uh, 
He was an American author, critic, and editor who wrote several classic mystery novels, short stories, science fiction, and radio dramas. Between 1942 and 47, he acted as a reviewer of mostly mystery fiction for the San Francisco Chronicle. In addition to Anthony Boucher, he was also employed the pseudonym H.H. Uh, H. Holmes, uh, which was, uh, in case no one knows, and, and I didn't until I read Devil in the White City, um, is a serial killer from Chicago during the 1890-something World's Fair. And uh, he basically lied his way into constructing an entire hotel where all the rooms were weird and had trapdoors and he had torture rooms and he made it so like all the hallways were at weird angles and were confusing so that he could chase after people and scare the crap out of them and kill them and torture them. And it was just like people, somebody would be sleeping in their bed and the bed would suddenly flip up and they'd slide through a trapdoor down a slide and into a torture room. Horrifying and horrible. Anthony Boucher thinks he's cute by calling himself that. Because until Devil in the White City, maybe not a lot of people knew about it. That's just a guess. This dick decided to give himself that pseudonym. Uh, he would also write light verse and sign it with Herman W. Mudgett, which was also the name of this murderer, because he went by a couple pseudonyms. So, good for him. Um, he died in 1968, and uh, he died of lung cancer. And the photo on Wikipedia that I'm reading uh, shows him with his hand on his hip and another hand's got a cigarette and he's kind of pointing arrogantly like he's yelling at someone. So he looks like a jerk. His sense of humor shows that he's a jerk and I have a feeling that this story is going to be terrible and uh, I'm going to regret reading it a lot like when I read Love Story a couple episodes back. Uh, so let's dive in. It's a story called Transfer Point that he wrote for Galaxy Science Fiction back in the 50s. So, prepare for racism and other horrible things. And a lot of pretension. Transfer Point by Anthony Boucher. It was a nasty plot uh, Vicro was involved in. The worst part was that he constructed it himself and didn't get the end right! Exclamation point. Vicro. V-Y-K. V-Y-R-K-O. Virko. Oh, God. This is going to be pretentious already. It's like 1950s. Uh, make up bizarre names as a way of making things sound different. There were three of them in the retreat. Three out of all mankind safe from the deadly yellow bands. <laughs> the great Kurth Labry himself uh, had constructed the retreat and its extraordinary air conditioning. <laughs> Not because his scientific genius had foreseen the coming of the poisonous element. Agnoton. Agnoton. Oh, God. And the end of the human race. But because he itched. Here... Virko sat, methodically recording the destruction of mankind. Once, in a straight factual record, for the instruction of future readers, if any, he added wryly to himself, and again as a 
canto in the epic poem of man, which he never expected to complete, but for which he lived. Lavra's long golden hair fell over his shoulders. It was odd that its scent distracted him uh, when he was at work on the factual record, yet seemed to wing the lines of the epic. Why bother? she asked. Her speech might have been clearer if her tongue had not been more preoccupied with the savor of the apple than with the articulation of words. But Virko understood readily. The remark was as familiar an opening as PK4 in chess. It's my duty, Virko explained patiently. I haven't your father's scientific knowledge and perception. Your father's? I haven't the knowledge of his humblest lab assistant, but I can put words together so that they make sense, and eh, sometimes more than sense, and I have to do this. From Lavra's... So dumb. (laughs) Plump red lips and apple pip fell into the works of the electronic typewriter. Virko fished it out automatically. This, too, was part of the gambit with the possible variants of grapeseed or an orange peel. Yeah, but why? Lavra demanded petulantly. Won't Father uh, let us leave here? A girl might as well be in a... uh, Convent, Virko suggested. He was a good amateur paleolinguist. Paleolinguist. There was an analogy. Even despite my presence, convents were supposed to shelter girls from the perils of the world. Now the whole world is one great peril. Outside of this retreat, go on, Lavra urged. She had long ago learned, Vikro suspected, that he was a faintly over-serious young man with no small talk, and that she could enjoy his full attention only by asking to have something explained, even if for the nth time. He smiled and thought of the girls he used to talk with, not at, and how little breath they had for talking now in the world where no one drew an unobstructed breath. It had begun with the accidental discovery in a routine laboratory analysis of a new element in the air, an inert gas, ah, which a great paleolinguist Larkish had named Agnoton. Ugh. This is like when you watch uh, Planet of the Apes and uh, all the humans are named Unta and things. It's just making up words just as abstract as possible to sound different. I hate it. I hate this already. The unknown thing, after the pattern of the similar nicknames given to others, Neon, the new thing, Xenon, the strange thing. It continued, and the explanation ran off so automatically that his mind was free to range from the next line of the epic to the interesting question of uh, whether the presence of earlobes uh, would damage the symmetry of Larva's perfect face. It had... Continued with the itching and sneezing, yeah, the coughing and wheezing, and the increase of the percentage of agnoton in the atmosphere, promptly passing any other uh, inert gas, even argon, and soon rivaling oxygen itself. And it had culminated, no, the lines were cleaner without lobes. And on that day, when only the three of them we're here in this retreat with the discovery that the human race was allergenic to agneton. Allergies had conquered for a decade of generations. Their cure, yeah, even in their paliton. Pali, 
Palaetan. I'm not looking these up because they're probably not even real words. Had been forgotten. The mankind coughed and sneezed and itched, dot, 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 and died. For while the allergies of the ancient past produced only agonies to make the patient long for death, Agneton brought on racking and incessant spasms of coughing and sneezing, which no heart could long withstand. So if you leave this shelter, my dear, Virko concluded, you too will fight for every breath and twist your body in torment until your heart decides that it is all too much trouble. Here we are safe because your father's eczema with eczema, all right, was the only known case of allergy in centuries and was traced to the inert gases. Here is the only air conditioning in the world that excludes the inert gases. And with them, Agnoton. And here, Lara leaned forward, a, a smile on her red fleck of apple skin on her lips, the apples uh, of her breasts touching Virko's shoulders. This, too, was part of the gambit. Usually... It was merely declined. Uh, Tirsa stood between them. Tirsa, who, who sang and talked bitter, whose plain face and beautiful throat were alike racked by Agneton. This time the gambit was interrupted. Kurth Labry himself had come in unnoticed. His old voice was thin with weariness, sharp with impatience. And here we are, safe in perpetu- perpetuity, <laughs> with our air conditioning, our energy plant, our hydroponics, exclamation point, safe in perpetual siege, besieged by an inert gas. Virko grinned, and uh, dignified, isn't it? Kurth Labry managed to laugh at himself. Damn your secretarial hide, Virko. I love you like a son. But if I had one man who knew a mason from a Matsoon to help me in the laboratory. Uh, you'll find something, Father, Lavra uh, said vaguely. Her father regarded her with odd seriousness. Uh, Lavra, he said, your beauty is the greatest thing that I have wrought. With a certain assistance, I'll grant, from the genes so obviously carried by your mother. That beauty alone still has meaning. The sight of you would bring a momentary happiness even to a man choking on his last spasms while our great web of civilization dot 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 he absently left the sentence unfinished and switched on the video screen he had to try a dozen channels before he found one that was still casting when every erg of a man's energy goes to drawing his next breath he cannot tend his machine at last eh, Kurt Labry picked up a New York N-Y-O-R-K, New York. Uh, All right, fine. Newscast. The announcer was sneezing badly. Uh, The older literature, Virko observed, found sneezing uh, comic. But still contriving to speak, and somewhere a group of technicians must have had partial control of themselves. 472 planes have crashed, the announcer said, (laughs) in the past 48 hours. Civil authorities have forbidden further plane travel indefinitely because of the danger of spasms at the controls. And it is rumored that all vehicular transport whatsoever is to come under the same ban. No rock lipper has arrived from Lund for, oh God, for over a week. It is 36 hours ah, since we've made contact with the Lund telecast. Telestation. 
Yerp, oh God, has been silent for over two days. In Asia, a week. Yerp? All right, fine. It's supposed to be Europe. Why you are... I hate... All right. The most serious threat of this academic, the head of the academy has said in an unauthorized statement, is the complete disruption of the systems of communication upon which world civilization is based when man becomes physically incapable of governing his machines. It was then that they saw the first of the yellow bands. It was just that. A band of bright yellow some 30 centimeters wide, uh, about five meters long, and so thin as to seem insubstantial. A mere stripe of color. It came underneath the backdrop behind the announcer. It streaked about the casting room with questioning sinuosity. No features, ah, no appendages, relieved its yellow blankness. Then... With a deft, whipping motion, it wrapped itself around the announcer. It held him for only an instant. His hideously shriveled body plunged toward the camera as the screen went dead. That was the start of the horror. Virko, naturally, had no idea of the origin of the yellow bands. Even Kurt Lambry eh, could offer no more than conjectures. From another planet, eh, the system, the galaxy, or the universe. Four dots. It did not matter. Precise knowledge had now lost its importance. Kurt Lavery was almost as indifferent to the problem as was Lavra. He speculated on it out of sheer habit. What signified was that the yellow bands were alien, and that they were rapidly and precisely completing the destruction of mankind, begun by the Agneton. Their arrival, immediately after the epidemic, Kurt Lavery concluded, cannot be coincidence. You will observe ah, that they function freely in an agneton-laden atmosphere. It would be interesting, Virko uh, commented, to visualize a band sneezing. Four dots. It's possible, the scientist uh, corrected, that the agneton was a poison gas barrage laid down to soften the earth uh, for their coming. But it is likely that they would know what a gas harmless to them would be lethal to other life. It's more probable that they learn from spectroscopic analysis that the atmosphere of Earth lacked the, an element essential to them, which they supplied before invading. Virko considered the problem while Lavra sliced a, a peach ah, with delicate grace. She was unable to resist licking the juice from her fingers. Oh, God. Then, if the agneton, he ventured, is something that they imported, it is possible that their supply might run short. Eh? Kurt Lavery fiddled with the dials under the screen. It was still possible to pick up an occasional glimpses from remote sectors, though by now the heart sickened in advance at the knowledge of the inevitable end of the cast. It is possible, Vicro. It is the only hope. The three of us here, where the Agneton and the Yellow Bands are alike helpless to enter. They may continue our self-sufficient existence long enough to outlast the invaders. Perhaps somewhere on Earth ah, there are other such nuclei, but I doubt it. We are the whole of the future, and I am old. Vicro frowned. He resented the terrible weight of a burden that he did not want, but he could not reject. He felt himself at once oppressed and ennobled. Larva... Lavra went on eating her peach. The video screen sprang into light. A, a young man uh, with tense, lined face of premature age spoke hastily, uh, urgently. To all of you, if there are any of you, I've heard no answer for two days now. 
It is a chance that I am here, but watch all of you. I have found how the yellow bands came here. I am going to turn the camera on now. Watch. The field of vision panned to something that was, for a moment, totally incomprehensible. This is their ship, the old, the old man gasped. It was a set of bars of metal, almost exactly the color of the bands themselves, and it appeared in the first instant like a three-dimensional projection of a tesseract. Then, as they looked at it, their eyes seemed to follow strange new angles. Possibilities of vision opened up beyond their capacities. For a moment, they seemed to see what the human eye was not framed to grasp. They come, the voice panted on from, from voice. The, the screen went dead. Vicro covered his eyes with his hands. Darkness was infinite relief. A minute passed before he felt that he could endure once more even the normal exercise of the optic nerve. He opened his eyes sharply at a little scream from Lavra. He opened them to see how still Kurt Labry sat. The human heart, too, is framed to endure only so much, and as the scientist had said, yeah, he was old. It was three days after Kurt Labry's death, oh, before Vigro had brought his prose and verse record up to date. Nothing more had appeared on the video, even after the most patient hours of knob twirling. Now Vicro leaned back from the keyboard and contemplated his completed record, and then uh, sat forward uh, with abrupt shock at the thought of the word completed. There was nothing more to write. The situation was not novel in literature. He had read many treatments, and even a rather successful satire on the theme itself. But here was the truth itself. He was the most imagination-stirring of all figures, the last man on earth. And he found it a boring situation. Kurt Labry, had he lived, would have devoted his energies in the laboratory to an effort, uh, even conceivably a successful one, yeah, to destroy the invaders. Vicro knew his own limitations too well to attempt that. Oh, God, Vrist? His gay, wild twin, who had been in Lunn, on yet another of his fantastic adventures, uh, when the Agneton struck Vrist, would have dreamed up some gallant feat of physical prowess to make the invaders pay dearly for their life. Uh, Vicro found it difficult to cast himself in so swashbuckling a role. He had never envied Vrist till now. Be jealous of the dead. Only the living are alone. Vicro smiled as he recalled the line from one of his early poems. It had been only the expression of a pose when he wrote it, a mood uh, for a song that Tirsa would sing well. It was in this mood that he found the ancient word had no modern counterpart, the pulps. He knew their history, how some eccentric of 2,000 years ago, a name still variously rendered as trees or tiller, had buried them in a hermetic capsule to check against the future, how Tarabal had dug them up some 50 years ago, how Kurt Labry had spent almost an entire Hartle Prize for them because, as he used to assert, their incredible mixture of exact prophecy and errant nonsense offered the perfect proof of the greatness and helplessness of human ingenuity. But Vicro had never read them before. He would at least be a novelty to deaden the boredom of his classically dramatic situation. He passed a more than a pleasant hour with Galaxy, oh, the same magazine that he's writing in, and Surprising, and the rest. Needed the dictionary, but rarely he was particularly impressed by one story. Uh, 
detailing with the most precise uh, minutiae the politics of religious American wars, a subject on which he himself had not an uh, unsuccessful novel, but Norbert Holt, he observed. Extraordinary how exact the forecast. And yet, extraordinary, too, how many of the stories dealt with space and time travel, which the race had never yet attained and now never would. And inevitably, there was a story, a neat and witty one, by an author named Knight, about the last man on Earth. He read it and smiled, first at the story and then at his own stupidity. He found Lavra in the laboratory of all unexpected places. She was staring fixedly at one corner where the light did not strike clearly. Eh, but so fascinating, Vicro asked. Lavra turned suddenly, her hair and flesh rippled with the perfect grace of the movement. How is that? Thinking. Vicro's half-formed intent toward her permitted no comment on that improbable statement. Oh, God. The day before Father uh, dot, 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 died, I was here with him, and I asked if there was any hope of our escaping ever. Only this time he answered me. He said, yes, there was a way out, but he was afraid of it. It was an idea he'd worked on but never tried, and he'd, we'd be wiser not to try it, he said. I don't believe in arguing with your father, even post-mortem, but I can't help wondering. And uh, when he said it, he looked over at that corner. Vicro went to that corner and drew back a curtain. <laughs> there was a chair of metal rods and a crude control panel. Though it was hard to see uh, what it was intended to control, he dropped the curtain. For a moment, he stood watching Lavra. She was a fool. Oh, God. But she was exceedingly lovely. And the child of Kurt Lavery could hardly carry only a fool's genes. Several generations could grow up in this retreat before the inevitable failure of the most permanent mechanical installations made it uninhabitable. By the time Earth would be free of agneton and yellow bands, or they would be so firmly established that there is no hope, a third generation would go forth into the world to perish or... Dot, dot, dot. He walked over to Lavra and laid a gentle hand on her golden hair. Vicro never understood whether Lavra had been bored before that time. A life of undemanding uh, inaction with plenty of food may well have sufficed her. Certainly, she was not bored now. At first, she was merely passive. Vicro had always suspected that she had meant the gambit to be declined. Then, as her interest mounted and Vicro began to compliment himself and his ability as an instructor, they became certain of their success. And from that point on, she was wrapped with the fascination of the changes in herself. That paragraph, I have no idea if it's supposed to involve the science of learning about her father's thing or if it's flirting. I can't tell. But even this new development did not totally rid Vicro of his own ennui. If there were only something he could do, some positive, vistrian, Kurt Labrian step that he could take, exclamation point, he damned himself uh, for having been an incompetent aesthetic fool who had taken so for granted the scientific wonders of his age that he had never learned what made them tick or how greater wonders might be attained. He slept too much, yeah, he ate too much, and yeah, for a brief period drank too much, until he found boredom less attractive uh, with a hangover. He tried to write, and that the terrible uncertainty of any future audience disheartened him. Yeah, 
It makes sense. The only reason why he should write. Sometimes a week would pass without his consciously thinking of Agneton or the yellow bands. And then he would uh, spend a day flogging himself into a state of nervous tension worthy of his uniquely dramatic situation. But he would always relapse. There wasn't anything to do. Now even the consolation of Lavra's beauty was vanishing. Aw. And she began demanding odd items of food, which the hydroponic garden could not supply. If you loved me, you'd find a way to make cheese. Or grow a new kind of peach. A little like a grape, uh, uh, only different. It was while he was listening to a film wire of Teresa's the last she ever made in the curious tonalities of the new rediscovered Mozart opera, and seeing her homely face, made even less lovely by the effort of those effortlessly sounding notes, that he became conscious of the operative phrase, If you loved me. Eh, have I ever said I did? He snapped. He saw a new and not readily understood expression mar the beauty of Lavra's face. No, she said in sudden surprise. No, and her voice fell to flatness. You haven't. And as her sobs, the first he had ever heard from her, traveled away toward the hydroponic room, he felt a new and not readily understood emotion. He switched off the film wire midway through the pyrotechnic rage of the 18th century Queen of Darkness. Vicrove found a curious refuge in the pulps. There was a perverse satisfaction in reading the thrilling exploits of other last men on earth. He could feel through them the emotions that he should be feeling directly, and the other stories were fun, too, in varying ways. For instance, eh, that astonishingly accurate account of the delicate maneuvering which averted what threatened to be the first and final atomic war. He noticed the oddity, eh, absolutely Every correct story of the future bore the same line. Occasionally, other writers uh, made good guesses, predicted logical trends, uh, foresaw inevitable exploitations, exploitations, all right, fine. But only Norbert Holt named names and dated dates with perfect historical accuracy. It was impossible. It was too precise to be plausible. It was far more spectacular than the erratic Nostradamus, often discussed in the pulps. But there it was. He had read the Holt stories solidly in order a half a dozen times without finding a single flaw. When he discovered the copy of Surprising Stories, he had slipped behind a shelf and therefore new to him. He looked at once at the contents of the page. Yes, there was a Holt, and he felt a twinge of irrational but poignant sadness, one labeled as posthumous. This story we regret to tell you is incomplete. And not only because of Norbert Holt's tragic death last month, uh, this is the last in a chronological order of Holt's stories, of a constantly plotted future. But his fragment was written before his masterpiece, The Siege of Lund. Holt himself used to tell me that he could never finish it, that he could not find an ending. And he died still not knowing how the last boredom came out. But here, even though in fragment form it was last published work of the greatest writer of the future, Norbert Holt. Okay, I get it. Somehow this guy, uh, is his works that he's been writing has gone back into the past. I'm calling it. The note was signed with the initials M.S. Vicro, had long since to more than professional intimacy between Holt and his editor, Manning Stern. This obituary introduction must have been a bitter task, but his eyes were hurrying on, almost fearfully, 
to the first words, the lost boredom. There were three of them in the retreat, three out of all mankind, safe from the deadly yellow bands the great Kurth Labry himself had constructed. Vikro blinked and started again. It still re- I, I called it. It still read the same. He took firm hold of the magazine as though the miracle might slip between his fingers and dashed off more energy than he had felt in months. He found Lavra eh, in the hydroponic room. I just found, he shouted, the damnedest unbelievable. Darling, said Lavra, I want some meat. Don't be silly. We don't have any meat. Nobody's eaten meat except at uh, ritual dinners for generations. Yeah, then I want a ritual dinner. You can go on wanting. Yeah, but look at this. Just read these first lines. Vicro, she pleaded, I want it. Yeah, don't be an idiot. Her lips pouted and her eyes moistened. Vicro, dear, what you said when you were listening to that funny music, eh, don't you love me? No, he barked. Her eyes overflowed. Eh, you don't love me? Not after... All Vicro's pent-up boredom and irritation erupted. You're beautiful, Lavra, but... Or you were a few months ago, but you're an idiot. And I'm not in the habit of loving idiots. But you... I tried to assure the perpetuation of the race, questionable, uh, though the desirability of such a project seems at the moment. It was not an unpleasant task, but I'm damned if it gives you the right in perpetuity to pester me. She moaned a little as she slammed out of the room. He felt, uh, yeah, oddly better. Adrenaline uh, is a fine thing for the system. He settled into a chair. Oh, it resolutely red, his eyes bugging like a cover monster's with amazed disbelief. When he reached the verbatim account of the quarrel he had just enjoyed, he dropped the magazine. It sounded so petty in print, such stupid, insane bickering in the face of dot, dot, dot. He left the magazine lying there and went back into the hydroponic room. Lavra was crying, noiselessly this time, which somehow made it worse. One hand had automatically plucked a ripe grape, but she was not eating it. She went up behind her, he went up behind her, and slipped his hand under her long hair and began stroking the nape of her neck. (laughs) The soundless sobs diminished gradually. When his fingers moved tenderly behind her ears, she turned to him with parted lips. The grape fell from her hand. I'm sorry, he heard himself saying. It's me that's the idiot, which, I repeat, I am not in the habit of loving. And you are the mother of my twins. Oh, they have kids. And I do love you. And he realized that the statement was quite possibly, if absurdly, true. I don't want anything now, Lavra said when words were again in order. She stretched contentedly, and she was still beautiful, even in the ungainly distortion which might preserve a race. Now, what were you trying to tell me? He explained, and this Holt is always right, he ended. And now he's writing about us. Oh, oh, well, then we'll know. We'll know everything. We'll know what the yellow bands are and what becomes of them. And uh, what happens to mankind and... And we'll know, said Lavra, whether it's a boy or a girl. Virko smiled. Twins, I told you. It runs in my family. And no less than one pair uh, to a generation. And I think it is, Holt's already planted the fact of... My having a twin named Frist. Now, even though he doesn't come into action. Twins! Oh, that would be nice. 
Uh, they wouldn't be lovely until we could. Uh, but quick, dear, read it to me. I can't wait. So he read Norbert Holt's story to her, too excited and too oddly affectionate to point out that her long-standing aversion for print persisted even when she herself was a character. He read on past the quarrel. He read a printable version of the past hour. He read about himself, reading the story to her. Now, she cried, we're up to now. What happens next? Vicro read. The emotional release of anger and love had set Vicro almost at a peace with himself again. But a small restlessness still mm, nibbled at his brain. Irrelevantly, he remembered Kurt Labry's cryptic hint of escape. Eh, great, you get to hear that, my phone making noise. Escape for the two of them, happy now. For the two of them and their, it had to be, according to odds, their twins. He sauntered curiously into the laboratory, Lavra following him. He drew back the curtain and stared at the chair of metal rods. It was hard to see the control board that seemed to be controlling nothing. He sat in the chair for a better look. He made a puzzled, grunting noises. Lavra, her curiosity finally stirred by something inedible, reached over his shoulder and poked at the green button. No, I don't like that last thing he says about me, Lavra objected. I don't like anything he says about me. I think Mr. Holt uh, is a very nasty person. He says you're beautiful. And he says you love me. Or does he? It's all mixed up. That's all mixed up, and I do love you. The kiss uh, was a short one. Lavra had to say, and what next? Yeah, that's all. It ends there. Well, aren't you? Vicro felt strange. Holt had descended his feelings so precisely. And he was at peace and still curious, and the thought of Kurt Labry's escape method did nibble restlessly at his brain. He rose and sauntered into the laboratory. Lavra following him, he drew back the curtain and stared at the chair of metal rods. It was hard to see the control board that seemed to be controlling nothing. He sat in the chair for a better look. He made puzzled, grunting noises. Lavra, her curiosity, finally stirred by something inedible, reached, for the second time, reached over his shoulder and poked at the green button. Vicro had no time for amazement when Lavra and the laboratory vanished. He saw the archaic vehicle bearing down directly upon him and tried to get out of the way as rapidly as possible. But the chair hampered him, and before he could get to his feet, the vehicle struck. There was a red explosion of pain, and then a long blackness. He later eh, recalled a moment of consciousness at the hospital and a shrill female voice repeating over and over, eh, but he wasn't there, then all of a sudden eh, he was, and he hit him. It was like he came out of nowhere, and he wasn't there, and all of a sudden... And then the blackness came back. All the time, his consciousness, although the semi-consciousness nightmares while doctors probed at him and his fever soared, his unconscious mind it must have been working on the problem. He knew the complete answer the instant he saw the paper on the breakfast tray, and the first day was capable of truly seeing anything. The paper was easy to read. For a Paleolinguist, uh, with special training in uh, the pulps, easier than the curious concept of breakfast was to assimilate. What mattered was the date, 1948, and the headlines refreshed his knowledge of the Cold War, the impending election. There was something she remember about the election. He saw it clearly. Kurt Labry's genius had at last evolved a time machine. That was the one escape. 
the escape which the scientist had not yet tested and rather distrusted, and Lavra had poked the green button because Norbert Holt had said the... had poked. What poke? The green button. How many buttons uh, would a wood poke if a poke if a wood poke would poke? Oh, God. The breakfast didn't seem to agree with him. Uh, doctor, maybe it's the paper. Makes me run a temperature every morning, too. Oh, doctor, you do say the funniest things. Nothing funnier than this case. Total amnesia, as best we can judge, eh, by his lucid moments. And his clothes don't help us. He must have been on his way to a fancy dress party. Or maybe I should say a fancy undress. Oh, doctor. Don't tell the nurses. Eh, they can blush. Never did when I was an intern. And you can't say they didn't get a chance. But this character here, not a blessed bit of identification on him, riding some kind of newfangled bike that got smashed up. Better hold off on the solid food for a bit. Stick to intravenous feeding. He had his trouble before his ritual dinners, Vic Rowe finally recalled. Meat was apt to affect him badly. The trouble was that he had not at first recognized those odd strips of oily solid which accompanied his eggs as meat. The adjustment was gradual and successful. In this and as other matters, as at the end of two weeks, he was eating meat easily. There's a lot of talk about meat. And he confessed with a faintly obscene non-ritual pleasure and equally easily chatting with nurses and fellow patients about events, which still privately tended to regard as mummified museum pieces of 1948. His adjustment, in fact, was soon so successful... Uh, that it could not continue. The doctor made that clear. Gotta think about the future, you know. Can't keep you here forever. Nasty, unreasonable prejudice against keeping well men in hospitals. Vicro followed the expected laugh uh, to come forth. Uh, but since he said, gladly accepting the explanation that was so much more credible than the truth, I have any, any idea who I am, uh, where I live, or what my profession is. Uh, can't remember anything. Don't know if you could take shorthand, for instance, or play the bull fiddle. The hell's a bull fiddle? Not a thing, Vicro felt it hardly worthwhile to point out. One manual accomplishment, the operation of the as-yet uninvented electronic typewriter. Behold, he thought, ah, the man of the future. I've read all the time travel stories. I know what should happen. I teach them everything Kurt Lavery knew, and I'm the greatest man in the world. Only the fictional time travel never happens uh, to a poor dope who took for granted all the science around him, who pushed a button, or eh, turned a knob, and eh, never gave a damn what happened or why. Here, they're just beginning to get two-dimensional black-and-white short-range television. We had, will have, stereoscopic, full-color, worldwide video, which I'm about as capable of constructing here as my friend the doctor would be of installing electric light in an ancient drum, the mouse of the future. The doctor had been thinking, too, he said. Notice uh, you're a great reader. Librarians have been telling me about you. Went through the whole damn hospital library like a bookworm uh, with a tapeworm. Uh, Vicro laughed dutifully. I like to read, he admitted. Ever try writing? The doctor asked abruptly. Almost in the tone in which he might reluctantly advise a girl that her logical future lay in Port Said. Whatever. This time, Vicro really laughed. 
That does seem to ring a bell, you know. It might be worth trying. But at that, uh, what do I live on until I get started? Eh, hospital trustees here administer a rehabilitation fund. Eh, my wrangle alone. Eh, it won't be much, of course, but I always say a single man's got only one mouth to feed. And if he feeds more, he won't be single long. <laughs> a little, said Vicrow, with a glance at the newspaper headlines, might go a long way. And it did. Ah, there was a loan itself, which gave him a bank account, on which, eh, in turn, he could acquire short-term loans at exorbitant interest. And there was the election. He had finally reconstructed what he should know about it. There had been a brilliant Wheel of If story in which... Well, much larger pulps, uh, on if uh, the Republicans had won the 1948 election, which meant that actually they had lost. And here in October 1948, all newspapers, all commenters, and most important, all gamblers, were convinced that they must infallibly win. On Wednesday, November 3rd, Vicro repaid his debts and settled down on his writing career, comfortably guaranteed against immediate starvation. A half-dozen attempts at standard fiction failed wretchedly. Uh, a matter of tone, editors remarked vaguely, on the rare occasions when they did not confine themselves uh, to the even vaguer phrases of printed rejection forms. A little poetry sold, if you can call this selling, Vicrow thought bitterly, uh, comparing the financial position of the poet here in his own world. His failures were beginning to bring back the bitterness and boredom. And his thoughts turned more and more to that future to which he could never know the answer. Twins. It had to be twins, of opposite sexes, of course. The only hope of the continuance of the race lay in a matter of odds and genetics. Odds, he began to think of the election bet. To figure other angles which he could turn for knowledge or profit... But the pulp reading had filled his mind with fears of paradoxes involved. He had calculated the election bets carefully. They could not affect the outcome of the election. They could not even, in their proportionally small size, affect the odds, but any further step. Vicrow was, like most conceited men, fond of self-contempt, which he felt he could occasionally afford to indulge in. Possibly his strongest access of self-contempt came when he realized the simplicity of a solution to all his problems. He could write for the science fiction pulps. The one thing that he could handle convincingly and skillfully with proper tone was the future. Possibly start off ah, with a story of the religious wars. He'd done all that research on his novel then. It was not until he was about to mail the manuscript that the full pattern of the truth struck him. Soberly, yet half-grinning, he crossed out Kurth Vicrow on the first page and wrote Norbert Holt. Yeah, he's only discovering that now. He didn't realize that? All right, fine. Manning Stern rejoiced loudly in this fresh discovery. This boy's got it. Ah, he makes it sound so real that the business office was instructed to pay the highest bonus rate unheard of uh, for a first story. And an intensely cordial letter went to the author outlining immediate needs and offering certain story suggestions. The editor of Surprising was no little surprised at the answer. Uh, I regret to say that all my stories will be based on one consistent scheme of future events. That you must follow, allow me to stick to my own choice material. And who the hell, Manning Stern demanded, is editing this magazine? And dictated a somewhat peremptory suggestion for a personal interview. The features were small and sharp, and the face had a sort of 
dark aliveness. It was a different beauty from Lavra's, and an infinitely different beauty from the curious standards set by the 1949 films. But it was a beauty, and it spoke to Norbert Holt. You'll forgive a certain surprise, Miss Stern, he ventured. I've read surprising uh, for so many years and never thought... Manning Stern grinned. Uh, that the editor was also surprising? Ah, I'm used to it, your reaction, I mean. I don't think I'll ever uh, be quite used to being a woman, or a human being for that matter. Isn't it rather unusual, from what I know of the field? Ah, please God, when I find a man who can write, eh, don't let him go all male chauvinist on me. I'm a good editor. And she said, with becoming, uh, with becoming modesty, and don't you ever forget it. And I'm a good scientist. I even worked on the Manhattan Project until some character discovered that my adopted daughter was a Spanish war orphan. What the hell is going on? But what we're here to talk about is a constant scheme gimmick of yours. It's all right, of course. It's been done before. But where I frankly think you're crazy is the planning to do it exclusively. Norbert Holt opened his briefcase. I brought along an outline that might help convince you. An hour later, Manning Stern glanced at her watch and announced, End of office hours. Care to continue this slugfest over martini or, or five? <laughs> I warn you, the more I'm plied, the less pliant I get. Nah. And an hour after that, she stated, We might get someplace we'd stay, we'd stay someplace. I mean, the subject seems to be getting elusive. The hell, Norbert. Holt announced recklessly, with editorial relations. Let's get back to the current state of the opera. It was paintings, and I'm telling you about the show at the... No, I remember now. It was movies. You were trying to explain the Marx Brothers unsuccessfully, I may add. Un... dot 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 suck dot 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 cess dot 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 folie, said Manning Stern, ruminatively. Five martinis, and the man can say unsuccessfully, successfully. But I try to explain the Mark Brothers, yet look, Holt. I've got a subversive orphan at home, and she's undoubtedly starving. I've got to feed her. You come home and meet her and have pat, uh, potluck, huh? Good, fine. Always like to try a new dish. Manning Stern looked at him curiously. Now, is that a gag or not? You're funny, Holt. You know a lot about everything. Then all of a sudden, you go all man from Mars on the simplest thing. Or do you? Anyways, let's go feed Raquel. Five hours later, Holt was saying, I never thought I'd have this reason for being glad I sold a story, Manning. I haven't had so much fun talking to... I almost said, to a woman. I haven't had so much fun talking since... And he had almost said, since the Agneton came. She seemed not to notice his abrupt halt. She simply said, Bless you, Norb. Maybe you aren't a male chauvinist. Well, it's kind of chauvinist, yeah. Maybe you're... Look, go find a subway or a cab or something. If you stay here another minute, I'm going to kiss you. <laughs> or admit you're right about your stories. And I don't know which is worse. Editor-author relations. Manning Stern committed to the second breach of relations first. The fan mail on Norbert Holt's debut left her no doubt that surprising, uh, apparently the magazine, would profit by anything he chose to write about. She'd never seen such a phenomenally rapid rise in author's popularity, or rather, you could hardly say rise. Holt hit the top with his first story and stayed there. He socked the fans, guest of honor at the washing invention. 
wash invention. The prose, since president of science fiction writers of America, and, and the first reader, author of the first pulp-bred science fiction book to stay three months on the bestseller list. And never had there been an author who was more pure damn fun to work with. Not that you edited him. You checked his copy for typos and sent it to the printers. Typos were frequent at first. He said something odd about absurd logical keyboard arrangement. But uh, just being with him, uh, talking about this and that and those, Raquel, just turning 16, was quite obviously in love with him. Praying... Uh, that he'd have the decency to stay a single, uh, stay single till she grew up. Oh, gross! Uh, you know, Manning Sita. I am Spanish, and the Mediterranean girls. Oh God! But there was the occasional feeling of oddness, like the potluck and the illogical keyboard and the night at SCWA. I got a story problem. Norbert Holt announced there an idea, and I can't lick it. Maybe if I toss it out to the uh, literary lions. Yeah, story problem, Manning said, a little more sharply than she intended. I thought everything was outlined for the next ten years. Ah, this is different. This is a sort of paradox story, and I can't get out of it. Yeah, it won't end. Something like this. I suppose a man in the remote year X reads a story and tells him how to work a time machine. So he works the time machine, goes back to the year X minus 2000, let's say, for instance, our time. So in now, he writes a story and he's going to read 2000 years later, telling himself how to work the time machine because he knows how to work it because he read the story, which he wrote because, man, he was starting to say, hold it. When Matt Duncan interrupted with good old and the cycle gimmick, lots of fun to kick around. But Bob Heinlein did that uh, once and for all in his by his bootstraps. Damnedest tour de force I ever read. There just aren't any switcheroos left. Outer burrows, Joe Henderson contributed. Uh, Norbert Holt looked in vain and questioned at him. They knew that one word per evening was Joe's maximum contribution. Austin Carter picked it up. Uh, our burrows, the worm that circles the universe with its tail in its mouth. The Asgard Serpent, too. And I think there's uh, something in Mayan literature. All symbols of infinity. No beginning, no end. Always uh, out by the same door which you went in. See that magnificent novel of Edison's? The Worm, Auroboros. The perfect acrylic novel. Ending with its recommencement. Stopping not because it's at a stopping place, but because it's uh, uneconomical to print the whole text over indefinitely. The Quaker Oats box, said Duncan, with a Quaker holding a box of a Quaker holding a box of a Quaker holding a... It was standard professional shop talk. It was a fine evening with the boys. But there was a look of an infinitely remote sadness in Norbert Holt's eyes. That was the evening that Manning violated her first rule of editor-author relationships. Kind of wondering when he's going to start wondering about the woman he left in the future that's going to have to give birth to twins by herself. But, whatever. They were having martinis in the same bar in which Norbert had, so many years ago, successfully said, unsuccessfully. Ah, they've been good years, he remarked, apparently to, to the olive. There was something wrong with this evening. No bounce, no yumph. Ah, that's a funny tense, Manning confided in her own olive. Aren't they still good years? I've owed you a serious talk for a long time. You don't have to pay the debt. 
We don't have to go much in for being serious, do we? Not so dead earnest catch in the throat serious. Don't we? I got an awful feeling, Manning admitted, that you're building up to a proposal, either to me or to that olive. And if it's me, I've got an awful feeling I'm going to accept, and Raquel will never forgive me, which is gross. You're safe, Norbert said dryly. Ouch. That's the serious talk. I want to marry you, darling, but I'm not going to. I suppose it's the first time you twirl your black mustache and tell me you have a wife and a family elsewhere. Oh, I hope to God I have. <laughs> no, it wasn't very funny, was it, Manning? I felt very little, aside from wishing she were dead. Ugh, it's like it was written by a 12-year-old. I can't tell you the truth, he went on. You wouldn't believe it. I've loved a woman before. One had talent and brain. The other had beauty uh, and no brain. I think I loved her. The damnedest curse of outer boroughs uh, that I'll never quite know. If I could take that tail out of that mouth. Go on, she encouraged a little wildly. Talk plot gimmicks. It's easier on me. And she is carrying, will carry, my child, my children. It must be my twins. Look, Holt. We came in here, editor and author. Remember back when? Yeah, let's go out that way. Don't go on talking. I'm a big girl. I can take everything. It's been fun knowing you and all. Future manuscripts will be uh, gratefully received. I knew I couldn't say it. I shouldn't have tried, but there won't be any future manuscripts. I've written every halt I've ever read. Eh, yeah. uh, does that make sense? Manning aimed the remark at the olive, but it was gone. So was the martini. Here's the last. He took it out of his breast pocket, neatly folded. The one we talked about at SCWA. The one I couldn't end. Maybe you'll understand. I wanted somehow to make it clear before the tone of his voice projected a sense of doom. And Manning forgot everything else. Is something going to happen to you? Are you going to... Oh, my dear, no. All right, so you have a wife on every space station in the asteroid belt, but if anything happens to you... I don't know, said Norbert Holt. I can't remember the exact date of that issue. He rose abruptly. I shouldn't have tried a goodbye. See you again, darling, the next time round Ouroboros. She was still staring at the empty martini glass when she heard the shrill of brakes and excited up springing a crowd outside. She read the posthumous fragment late that night. Her eyes had dried sufficiently to make the uh, operation practicable practicable <clears throat> and through her sorrow her mind fought to help her making her think making her be an editor she understood a little and disbelieved what she understood and underneath she prodded herself but it isn't a story it's too short too inconclusive it'll just disappoint the Holt fans and that's everybody much better if I do a straight obit take up a full page on it she fought hard to keep on thinking, not feeling. She had never before experienced so strongly the I-have-been-here-before sensation. She had been faced with a dilemma once before, once on some other time spiral, as the boys in SCWA would say. And her decision had been... It's sentimentality, she protest er, protested. It isn't editing. This decision's right, I know it. And if I go and get another of these attacks and start to change my mind... She laid the posthumous hold fragment on the coals. It caught fire quickly. The next morning, Raquel greeted her with Manning Sita. Who's Norbert Holt? 
Manning had slept so restfully that she was even tolerant of foolish questions at breakfast. Who? she asked. Norbert Holt. Somehow the name popped into my mind. Is he perhaps one of your writers? Eh, yeah, I'd never heard of him. Raquel frowned. I'm almost sure. Can you really remember all them? I'm going to check those bound volumes of surprising. The same magazine this is written in. Any luck with your, oh, what is it, Holt? Manning asked the girl a little later. No, Manning Sita, it was quite uh, unsuccessful. Unsuccessful. Now why in heaven's name, mused Manning Stern, should I be thinking of martinis at breakfast time? Ah, the problems with writing a story involving paradox. Do you sit down and really think it out? Because a paradox means that time is linear. It's got a beginning, middle, and end. And when you create your paradox, it's the overlapping of that beginning, middle, and end. So in this story, Anthony Bosher, also known as H.H. Holmes, because he's an asshole, uh, decided... Yeah, I'm going to have him from the future read books by an author that uh, is clearly somebody who time-traveled. He goes back in the past, leaving behind a woman that's going to give birth by herself to twins and uh, not really care too much about it. He goes back in the past, uh, almost gets hit by a car, and uh, goes to the hospital, or he does get hit, but he doesn't die, goes to the hospital, and, uh, and then he recovers and becomes an author and decides, hey, I'll take the name of that book I wrote. I'm that guy. So he already knows the paradox. Then he goes through the process of writing all the stuff, gets to what would be the end, and instead of finishing it, chooses, no, I'm going to be just as vague and uh, leave it open-ended as the version I read in the future, when he has a choice to continue on and explain more. Then he says goodbye to his publicist, who he's in love with, who has a daughter who's way underage and is in love with him, which is gross. Then he walks outside and gets hit by a car, and then the publicist doesn't remember who he is, and neither does the creepy daughter that wants to marry him. Which means that the car he got hit by is not a different car, but the same car from when he first entered. Which doesn't make any sense. Because that means as he gets hit and gets killed, that his past future self should show up and also get hit and survive. So there should be two versions of him laying on the ground, but that isn't a thing. And the fact that the publicist doesn't remember who he is means that the publicist and the rest of the world got sent back into the past where he died this time versus living, and they don't know who he is. But yet the books that he wrote still exist and travel into the future, which means he did exist, which means they should remember him. So basically the author didn't think this out and was pretty lazy and thought he was being clever. And, uh, and that's what you get from a guy whose last surviving photo is him looking like he's yelling at someone while holding a cigarette to which later he dies of lung disease. So there's that. What do we learn from it? Nah, Jerks write dumb stories. So we learned that. Uh, we also learned that unintentionally, I read a story involving 
uh, some sort of airborne disease that kills everyone. While we're living in a period of time right now where my coworker said that uh, he had to stand in line outside of a store and you couldn't be let in until someone left the store so that that way there could be a good amount of space between people, which is pretty terrifying. Uh, it's not bread lines like uh, in communist Russia. It's something far worse. Uh, there's plenty in there. They just can't let that many people in at the same time. So there you go. It wasn't intentional, but it's more scary story. So hopefully you'll listen again uh, uh, next time. And uh, hopefully I'll find something lighthearted that doesn't remind you of what horrible things are happening out there in the world right now. So uh, everyone take care of themselves. Uh, if you can, stay in your home. If you have to go work out in the public, uh, God help you. And uh, I will see you next time. <laughs>